You're listening to Tripods Cast, episode 10 The Worlds of Sam Yude. Welcome to this episode of Tripods Cast. My name is Rebecca Ray, and here with me are my co-hosts, Danny Ray. Hello. And John Isles. Hello. This is the final episode of Tripods Cast. In this episode, we will be exploring the author of the Tripods books, John Christopher, a.k.a. Sam Yude. Over the course of this episode, we will be hearing from two of Sam Yude's children, Nick and Rose. This episode is released on 16th of April 2022, which is the centenary of Sam Yude's birth in 1922. Sam Yude was born in Lancashire during an unseasonable snowstorm and from a young age was devoted to the new genre of science fiction. Yude edited fanzines in the 1930s and 40s, including Fantasy War Bulletin. Sam once commented on sci-fi that in the early 30s we knew just enough about the solar system for its possibilities to be a magnet to the imagination. Yude wrote sci-fi short stories throughout the 1940s and 1950s. His first published story was Dreamer in the March 1941 edition of Weird Tales. Yude's stories were published in over a dozen magazines including Fantastic Universe, Astounding Science Fiction, Thrilling Wonder Stories, Beyond Infinity and Fantastic Story Magazine. These were a variety of British and US science fiction magazines which began publication in the 20s and 30s, some of which still publish today. It was thanks to a scholarship awarded by the Atlantic Award and bankrolled by the Rockefeller Foundation which enabled Yude to publish his first novel, The Winter Swan, in 1949 under the name Christopher Yude. Yude began writing books under various combinations of his name including Samuel Yude, C.S. Yude and Christopher Yude. John Christopher was the pseudonym he used for writing speculative fiction works such as The Death of Grass, The World in Winter, The Year of the Comet and A Wrinkle in the Skin. Yude wrote a total of 10 non-genre titles before focusing entirely on genre fiction. Yude wrote for various genres under a variety of names, for example cricket novels as William Godfrey, gothic romances and books with female protagonists as Hilary Ford, thrillers as Peter Graff, and erotica as Stanley Winchester. Other names Sam Yude used included Peter Nichols and William Vine for sci-fi stories. In 1966, under the John Christopher name, Yude branched out into writing young adult speculative fiction, including the Tripods trilogy, the Lotus Caves, the Guardians and the Sword of the Spirits trilogy. By the time of Sam Yude's death in 2012, he had written 56 published novels and we will be discussing some of these novels today. Right, so as part of our homework for this episode, each of us was tasked with going out and reading other books by Sam Yude. First up, we've got John, who's going to discuss two short stories. John? Okay, so I have in my hand a anthology called Science Fiction. It was published in 1978. Stories chosen by James Gibson. And in this, we have stories by who I've heard of. So Philip K. Dick, Imposter. Which we, ah. we read for our book club. We did, uh, we did. Zero Hour by Ray Bradbury. Bertram Trandler, Kurt Vonnegut, Isaac Asimov, H.G. Wells. He's in great company here. Yeah. In fact, John Christopher 
is the only author in this book to have two stories. So the first story is called Blemish from 1953. And it's about, well, it's a slightly whimsical story about an alien ambassador who comes to visit the Earth to see if we're suitable to join the galactic culture. Yeah. Which is a little bit like Star Trek, where the Vulcans discovering that Earth was advanced enough to, to approach. It's mm. a similar thing. So that was quite enjoyable. And the second one in this book was from 1954, and it's called New Wine. So it's about a group of astronauts who leave the Earth to go to a, a new planet, and because of a time dilation effect, they're going to be coming back 100 years later. Now, the protagonist, his girlfriend is a genetic uh, scientist, and she and her team have this plan to make humanity telepathic. So they have a plan to transmit this signal via satellites across the entire world simultaneously to make all unborn babies telepathic because they think it will save humanity and make them peaceful. And obviously, I'm not going to spoil the end of the story, but when they return, things are not quite as they expect. These stories, they're very well written, like the rest of Sam's books. They feel of their time in the same way the Philip K. Dick stories from the 40s and 50s read. Yeah. So it's still enjoyable, but, you know, it's kind of like the things of, like, everyone has a personal helicopter kind of future. Oh, yeah, like that um, kind of stuff. Yeah. And, or, like, they've all got hologram TVs, which, you know, mm. they don't feel that dated. It's like Jetsons and that kind of thing, you know. It's... Yeah, just keeping an open mind. It's, it's what it, they yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a past version of what they thought the future was, was going to be, but, but, which which I like. Both stories were very enjoyable and, yeah. and, and different. One was whimsical and one was um, serious speculation. Hmm. They were very good. Were they both published under the John Christopher name? Yes, they were both John Christopher stories. It would be cool if Sam Ude's short stories would get published again, republished so they're more accessible, because at the moment they seem to be spread out across various different old magazines and things that are out of print and a bit tricky to track down. But we'll discuss more of that later. We're now going to listen to our first interview clip with two of Sam Ude's children, Nick and Rose Ude. They were on Sile Press, a publisher dedicated to publishing and out-of-print books, written by Sam Ude. Nick and Rose Ude, welcome to Tripod's Cast. Thank you. We'll start with how Sile Press came into being. I don't know that we originally planned this, but when Dad uh, Sam Ude, also known as John Christopher, died, he left the management of his literary estate to... Rose and myself, with Rose being the literary manager. And uh, I think it took us a while to take stock of what there was there because the world knows about the tripods and the death of grass, but there were a lot of other books. And once we'd done the count, we found that, in fact, he'd, during his lifetime, had 56 novels published, a lot of which were out of print, and a lot of which were by John Christopher but out of print, but many were by different authors like Hilary Ford, Stanley Winchester, William Godfrey, and of course, Sam Ude. And he started his writing career as Sam Ude. And as far as we can tell, he always intended to be Sam Ude with the odd John Christopher on the side or the odd Hilary Ford on the side, the odd Peter Graf on the side. But the John Christopher persona took over gradually, particularly after the death of Grass. So we discovered we had all these novels that we thought it was a shame that they were out of print. And 
it so happened that between the two of us, we had some publishing skills. We've both worked in publishing and Rose still works part-time in publishing. I work full-time in publishing. So we thought we could perhaps run our own DIY publishing outfit to bring back into print more of Dad's works. I see. And the name S-Y-L-E is uh, an acronym, isn't it? Indeed, Sam, you literary estate. And and actually, I better just mention, because I'm not quite sure how, when you spoke to Will Hadcroft the other week, I can't remember whether he pronounced it Yowd. I'm not quite it's sure. Just, it's just at the time when he met Dad. Dad was born Sam Yowd. In his, I don't know what he'd been, in his late 20s, he changed the pronunciation to Yowd. And then uh, later on in life, he went back to Yowd. Right. So I think probably when Will met him, he would have been Sam Yard. Yeah. So very confusing. So it's best just to see it on paper and not try to say it out loud. I, I see. I hope we're not getting it wrong on the podcast every time, Ben. Well, you're not getting it wrong. You can have it either way, you see. You're <laughs> both <are> right. <laughs> but you've grown up as Yud. That's right, yes. It's interesting. Have you met any other Yuds? There was. Um, uh, do you know Tatton Park? The head gardener there until quite recently, I think a few years ago, was a Sam Yowd and probably some distant relation. Many years ago, I took a brief interest in genealogy because mm. it seemed to me we had a, an unusual name and there have always been speculation about where it came from. Yeah. And this was in the maybe early days of the web or the, the early days when people were e emailing one another and sort of discovering one another from the far corners of the globe. And I found that there were Yudes or Yauds, they called themselves both in yeah. New Zealand, California, lots in England, quite a few in the West Country, but a, a lot up north. And they all had their own theories about where the name came from and if they were Canada or the US yeah. or New Zealand, they had their stories about how their ancestors had emigrated. So I haven't actually physically met any Yudes or Yauds other than the ones I know <laughs> through being related to dad. But I have been in touch with, you know, maybe a dozen over the years who share that mm. name. It's interesting. I was actually starting to tie myself in knots last week, thinking, oh, no, have we been pronouncing it wrong all this time? <laughs> and didn't we record two takes once as well? Yes, we did, because we started off with Yude and then was told by Will it's Yowd, so we changed it to Yowd. Oh, really? Right, right. Well, no, as I said, it used to be very strange, like in later years, if Dad took me out for a meal or something, and we'd go into a restaurant, and he'd say, table reserved for Yowd, and I'd be thinking, you know, who is this Yowd? <laughs> Maybe for the course of this interview, we should change to Yaud, Rose, so that we don't get your listeners confused if they've already heard Will talk about Sam Yaud. I think they can handle that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go with how you pronounce your name. So, so, so how did you go about choosing which novels to publish? Well, we, we decided that we wanted something not too high profile because obviously we were complete novices at this mm. despite having publishing experience to a certain degree but in terms of do-it-yourself publishing yeah. and it seemed like Sarnia which is was dad's first gothic romance thriller would be something that it wouldn't do much harm if we got it wrong put it like that and also there was the connection because 
it's set in Guernsey where we were brought up. There was a sort of connection there and we knew that there was a chance we could at least sell the odd copy to people in Guernsey because they'd be interested <laughs> in, in the setting. And, and Sarnia, it happens, is the old Roman name for the island of Guernsey. So, uh -huh. you know, if you Google Sarnia, you, you may get Dad's book, but you may get a lot of people who are just interested in calling the island by its old name. And there is a place, is it in Canada, Rose, called Sarnia? I think we, we discovered it's one of these places, you know, like they've got a, a dozen Parises all over the world and a few Londons and there's even a Sarnia somewhere. Guernsey appears in other books, doesn't it? Like When the Tripods Came. I'd forgotten it was in the When the Tripods Came. It's sort of the most famous one. It's because I haven't read that for a few years, but the most famous one it's in in terms of his books was um, A Wrinkle in the Skin, which is this cataclysmic earthquake to end all earthquakes strikes Guernsey and it's completely devastated. I was gonna say it sounds like your dad had a grudge against Guernsey. <laughs> you could certainly be forgiven for interpreting it like that. In his novel of, about a global ice age or an ice age that at least affects the northern hemisphere where the lucky ones manage to emigrate to Africa there's an expedition kind of like a colonial discovery expedition it's like a, a mirror image of what we did in the Victorian times when we discovered Africa Livingston and Stanley and all that but this is yeah. the Africans coming up to discover the north which is has become a savage and wild it's place it's a nice touch and they arrive in Guernsey and there's a kind of semblance of order in Guernsey, but it turns out that there's a semblance of order because the survivors have taken the majority of the population and stuck them on rafts and sent them out over the frozen waves to presumably <laughs> die a death. So that, that was another reflection on Guernsey, I think. Perhaps a bit of a ruthless place, or, mm. or in that novel at least. I have to say, my, my knowledge of the Channel Islands is restricted to Bergerac and uh, Enemy at the Door. Enemy at the Door, that, that was about the occupation of... Of Guernsey, Guernsey yeah. Yes, because when we moved to Guernsey, which would have been late 50s, it, you know, it wasn't that distant no. the Nazi occupation. And I seem to remember, Nick, that you had collections of uh, German helmets and things that you picked up from God knows where. <laughs> yeah, when I was a lad, I... Yes, he was younger think, then. <laughs> I, I went out with some friends and explored subterranean German fortifications, which hadn't yeah. in, the, in those days been properly cleared out. And I, I managed to retrieve a German helmet and probably other trophies. Gas masks? I seem to remember we had gas masks. <laughs> Might have had a gas mask. <laughs> And that was Nick and Rose. One thing interesting in that interview was we finally learned how to pronounce his name. <laughs> because there's been some back and forth thing about this. Now we know it's because he was doing that young adult thing of, oh, I'm going to pronounce it differently now <laughs> to how it was when I was born. 
and doing my own reading up on him, Sam Yud also later on, I think as a teenager or as a young adult, also had Christopher added to his name. So he started going by Samuel just to, I guess, annoy his dad because his dad christened him as Sam and he insisted it was just Sam, not Samuel. So later on, Sam went and got confirmed with the Church of England and said it wants to be Samuel Christopher. Like it. Christopher's a fake middle name then. Mm. Like the style. But yeah, so we're going to go with a Yud because that's what Nick and Rose go by and it just makes things less confusing that way. Yeah, it's a bit late to change it as well on the last episode of a podcast. Yeah, but as Nick and Rose said, it, it couldn't be either because their dad did switch. Uh, so they talked about Guernsey which is and how Guernsey comes across as being quite a ruthless place, which mm. is quite funny because I chose to read the Hilary Ford books, which are gothic romances, and there's two of them that are currently in print. Sarnia from 1974 and A Bride for Bedivere, which was published in 1976. And Sarnia, which was the older one, that's Sarnia is basically the old Roman name for Guernsey. And most of the book is set in Guernsey. It starts in London, but the rest of it's on Guernsey, and it is a gothic romance. If you look at the old 70s covers, they've got the kind of covers that I'm just like, oh, no, I would never touch that. Uh-huh. If I saw that in a bookshop, I'd be like, mm, no. <laughs> Don't judge a book by its cover. I know, the very very Boons and Millie kind of covers, you know, they're just like, you know. Uh, Those kind of covers. But the newer covers are more, I guess, geometric. And I really enjoyed these books. They're set in the 1850s, both of them, Sarnia and A Bride for Bedivere. And they've got very strong female protagonists in them. I mean, just to warn you, in these two books, you're going to get things like attempted sexual assault, unpleasant stuff like that. So that's a trigger warning. I'm not going to go into details. It's not especially graphic. So some people might find that upsetting. Anyway. Sarnia, it begins in London. Sarnia's mother dies and Sarnia's having to make her own way in the world. And she starts dating a guy called Michael. And, you know, she's happy. She's independent. But then some relatives from her father's side of the family, from Guernsey, come to visit. And they're, like, spending the day in London with her and hanging out and being really nice and lovely. And they persuaded to go to Guernsey with her just to chill out and hang out and maybe meet her father, even though she doesn't want to. And she has a great time then. She does meet her dad. And he's quite difficult at first. And it is a very classic gothic location, an old mansion, dusty, <laughs> with a creepy butler and everything's falling apart. And she goes in and starts cleaning up and making changes, despite her dad saying, no, go away. But she does it. And it changes his mind and he gives a great portion of his will to her. He changes it, but then dies. <gasps> Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Yeah. Around this point, I do start thinking, I'm not sure who to trust anymore. I start having doubts about people and things start going badly for Sanya. There's quite a horrible stuff that she gets put through in this book. But she is a strong character and she gets through it all in the end. But it's, it's exciting. I couldn't put this book down. I had to keep reading it and wanting to know how she's going to get out of this because you really feel for this character. That's that's good. And again, Sam always wrote convincingly of any character in, in any genre, mm. didn't they? Yeah. Probably helped that having a different pseudonym for each genre as well. So they did feel distinctive. Mm. Yes. So the other book I read was A Bride for Bedivere. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is about a girl called Jane... Well, she's got loads of brothers and sisters. She's got a mum who's a bit of a pushover, who's weak, because her dad is an absolute monster. He's drunken, violent. Right at the beginning of the book, he's dead. But you do get a lot of flashbacks to what he was like and how he would just beat up his wife and the kids. And Jane grew to hate him. But because he died, they had no income. This is a massive family and they were in a serious situation. So the mum, turns out she was from a posh family and they disowned Hmm. her because she married beneath her station. 
And so she reached out to these posh relatives, the Bedevies, even though everyone's like, oh, you're wasting your time. But no, one of them comes along and he's the Lord. And he's like, he looks at the kids and says, I'm going to take one of your kids back with me to live with me as my ward. And that's the condition for me giving you all money and so you can live. Mm. And they thought he was going to pick one of the little kids. No, he chose Jane, the eldest, because he's got sons in this big posh house. So he's got his wife, he's got the eldest son who's sickly and dying. Basically, Lord Bedevie is trying to ship Jane with the eldest son because he wants them to have a kid. Yeah. So the name gets passed down to the kid because the son's not going to live long. There's a lot of stuff in this book. Again, there's lots of gothic locations in windswept moors and such. And Is this one set on Guernsey as well? No, no, no. It starts off in Portsmouth and then they move across to Cornwall. Ah, I've never read any gothic romances, so this this might give me the introduction and the impetus mm, to read them. It's very good because I've seen all these pictures of, of women in sort of nightgowns running away from houses on Windswept Moors and whatever. And, uh, like you said, it's at a peak in the seventies. So, and they are good, and the, the, the women Sarnia and Jane are not wilting violets. They are independent women who will. You know, they're not just going to stand there and they will try and do yeah. things themselves. And that's good. Even if they do need a man to help them in the end. Yeah. And I suppose that's in keeping with the time period it was written in as well. Yeah. Which shows Seven how months. actually independent these women were. Yeah. So there is action stuff in this. There's lots of horse riding and mm. hunting. But you've also got the uh, romance side, the heaving bosoms <laughs> and that kind of stuff. The fun bit. Yeah, the fun bit. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's that too. Okay, so we're going to move on and listen to some more of our interview with Nick and Rose. You chose Sarnia as a safe one to start with, so that was under the new Hillary Ford. Are there any Sam Mude ones that you're planning to publish his earlier works as himself? We've published quite a few Sam Udes, four so far, and we've got another one in the pipeline. So his first novel, The Winter Swan... Mm. which he wrote in 1946-47 and was published in 1949, was a Sam Ude book. And probably at the time, he was more interested in writing a, a kind of bell letter style, you know, very fine prose and influenced yeah. by writers like H.G. Wells and Aldous Huxley. And it's a great novel, I, I, I would say. I mean, first novels often are because a writer often puts well, the most that they have at the time into their first novel. Rose, what else have we got in our Samud? Um, um, I've got a couple of favourites of the one we've so far published. One is Holly Ash, which is basically the portrait of a sociopath. And uh, another one, um, A Palace of Strangers, is about a Jewish family in Liverpool, Jewish and German, and so it takes you up through the 20s and 30s, through the war and into the 50s. I think the the characters in that are particularly well-drawn. If you were to read either of those, you'd have no idea that it was the same writer as The White Mountains, I would suggest. Yes, yes, very much. Dad had an anecdote about A Palace of Strangers. When it first came out, it had a review. I think it was the Jewish Chronicle. It was one of the top Jewish papers or magazines at the time. And they were praising Dad's Jewish credentials because only a Jew could write like that and understand, get under the skin of what it was like to be a Jew in this period having family members in Germany who were really in an impossible situation because of the rise of Nazism. 
And dad wrote back to them and said, actually, I'm not Jewish. And they, they were a bit offended. <laughs> I think he'd taken it as a compliment that they um, read the book and thought he, he, yeah. he must be because he got so deeply into what it must have been like. Yeah, it's, it's a sign of good writing that it's like this, this cliche that men can't write convincingly for female characters. Is, is, that, is that how it works these days? Or, or is it, I mean, I always thought it was like men can't write women and women can't write men. I'm not sure, Rebecca. Uh, it has been a trope where people talk about, oh, men can't write convincing female characters, but there are men who can, like J. Michael Straczynski, Mark Cherry, Randy Milholland. So, you know, there are people who can do that. In your dad's books, like The Winter Swan, they've got female protagonists. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And with the female protagonist, he told the story about The Winter Swan that he wanted to get away from the cliche that male writers wrote about uh, male characters or, or couldn't write about female characters. Mm-hmm. So he he made a point of making his principal character a woman. And also the point that your first novel is autobiographical. You want to get away from that. So it was so, about people who were from a different background from his working class gender, background. Different background, you know, so a well-to-do uh, middle class, upper middle class woman as written by... By a, you know, yeah. who'd basically been grown up as a working class northern lad. He would spend hours in reference libraries researching the prose and the stories and the histories of people from these different backgrounds. It, it was a matter of hard research, taking it all in before he could actually create those characters and write about them. On your reprint, it says Samud as, and then the name of the author of that book. Did he ever hide that he was the same author, you know, like Stephen King did with the Backman books, for example? Shall I tell them, Rose? Yes, please. Yes. <laughs> Stanley Winchester. I had never come across the name Stanley Winchester, but uh, apparently in the late 60s, early 70s, he was a bit of a thing, quite mm. a, a well-known, successful writer who wrote about, shall we say, sort of intimate relations between men and women somewhat explicitly. But if you were to read them today, you'd think, blimey, that's tame. Yeah, but (laughs) in those days, it was the kind of thing that before the Lady Chatterley's love trial might have been up for censorship. And it turned out that uh, one of Dad's fans, Paul Brazier, who did quite a bit of research when he first started looking at Dad's work, this was the early, late 70s, early 80s, managed to join up the dots and work out that this mystery writer who no one had been able to uncover in the 70s was Stanley Winchester. So Dad came open about it and we were all rather surprised because... (laughs) We had not known about it. I think, it I think it very... was known about at home because he had uh, complimentary copies of Stanley Winchester books hidden away. <laughs> it was known about, but I hadn't seen those copies. And I don't suppose in those days I would have been interested. It wasn't a, a name that I was familiar with. I would have thought he's just got some books by another writer. I'm not sure which newspaper it was, but there was an article like, who is Stanley Winchester? You know. <laughs> They didn't know who it was, but it was uh, it was a, a, a literary curiosity, shall we say, at the time. <laughs> More recently, I've uncovered some of his correspondence from the period, and there, there was a point where one of the Stanley Winchester 
just a, a, a very slight spoiler. They're all about people in the medical profession, all except no, one. The agents, the agents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all, all except the last. The last one is about literary agents. And right. in none of them do the protagonists come off well. There aren't many nice characters in any of them. I mean, they're getting into bed with one another rather a lot, but it all leaves a rather nasty taste in the mouth. And uh, there was a doctor, I think he was actually from Suffolk, who was planning to sue the publishers because he said, this is clearly about me. (laughs) (laughs) And and Dad managed to persuade the publishers to see him off. He was clearly an attention seeker and, you know, there, there was no way the book could be traced to him. So, so that's going to be last on the style publishing list then. Uh, I'm not that keen on. What do you think, Rose? Novel, so um, I will be in no hurry to start proofreading <laughs> our copies of them. Um, I've always been fond of Men with Knives, which is his book about surgeons. Apart from anything else, it's a great title for a book about surgeons and surgeons misbehaving, uh, you know, either with patients or with nurses or fellow surgeons, whatever. And the inevitable death on the operating table. So there's great drama in that book. He was writing those around the same time that he was writing a lot of the young adult books, wasn't it? I mean, when when was it the Sandy Winchester period, Nick? The early seventies. So men with yeah. knives. Yeah. At the same time as, as certainly the Prince and Waiting Stroke Sword yep. trilogy. Yep. So keeping different genres on the boil at the same mm. time. So they were talking about The Winter Swan, which is Sam Ude's first book. It was the first one I read. I chose it first because it is his first. I was quite curious and it sounded interesting. The plot is about a woman called Rosemary and she it's her funeral in about 1948. And we're seeing it through the eyes of an elderly man who knew her in her last years of her life. And it's just flashing back to his encounters with her. But then... It cuts to um, Rose. It's really strange. She's like a disembodied voice in the ether and she's being made to watch her life again. Now right. she's dead. So then it goes back in time. So it keeps going back a few years. So we see events happening in her life in reverse. There's a lot of loss in this life and showing different things. Like it goes back through the Second World War, the 30s and various stuff that happens with her kids. In the 20s and her husband's. It goes back to the First World War. It just keeps going back right through to her childhood to give you an understanding of who she is as a person. That's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting because it's a female protagonist, which is what he wanted to do, but she's seen mostly through male eyes throughout the book. Right, rather than her viewpoint. Mm. That sounds interesting. And there is some themes in there seeming about things like transitions and stuff. You've got characters noticing things, but they don't process it. You know, like one minute there's no snow, the next they go out and it's snowed everywhere. Or the tide coming in, that kind of thing. Yeah, There's characters reflecting on those kind of transitions. You don't always notice the world going by until it's gone by. Yeah, It is interesting because you know what the future is. It'll go back to a chapter and it'll focus on, I don't know, the eldest son. 
and you'll be thinking things are supposed to happen to him. So you're waiting for it to happen. <laughs> he's quite curious. Yes, yeah, it's, it's when you know something and they don't. Yeah, and you do. You see what happens. You see what them. happens and what caused it in the first place. Yeah, I like I like those kind of things. Like when you see shows mm. when they, they start off at the end and then they go right, we'll go back to the beginning kind of thing. Mm. So you see how it unfolds. Because there's characters who don't seem as important in some chapters, but they're mentioned. But then you see them more in later chapters when she's younger and realizing that's how she met them. And they had f- further importance. Yeah, or they had life. Yeah, or they were actually friends at that point. Whereas in later points in life, they didn't like each other. That yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, that sounds interesting. That yeah, sounds like a good book. Yeah, I liked it. It was good. So moving on a bit, Dan. You, uh, I read the the practice. Yes, so Dan, you read the practice. <laughs> yes, uh, that's his uh, foray into erotica. Now, yes, I will say one thing about it. Yes, there is some you know sordid, uh, sexy, sexy times that's written very well. But to be quite honest, the whole book itself is just more of a drama. Like I could imagine this being just a, dr- a drama TV series nowadays. It's got so many different characters. They've all got different things going on in their lives. You've got a character in 1960s England who's a homosexual who's never yeah. married until they find somebody. You've got a bored housewife because, you know, her husband's always working and doing all sorts of things. It's all a middle, upper class society. Mm. It's very much a drama on that and I think it's fantastic. You see different things. Some things yeah. are skeletons in closets. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's just... It sounds like a soap. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily class it... It's just a... It's not even a soap. It's a drama. I could see it as a proper drama series. Orby mm. City, perhaps. No, that's more soapy. That's, that's <laughs> soapy like forever and goes on and on. I'm talking about... Yeah. Prop, it, I feel like it could be a proper full production. Like Bridgerton, how that is a period drama. This could be a 1960s yeah. drama. It's just so well done. And I think one thing that is the heart of what Samuel does well is that it's about the characters. Mm. Like It starts off with a, this one character as a GP and he is in love with this one woman in London but moves out to this seaside town to get this job and kind of, not necessarily falls in love with another woman, but realises he kind of has to go down that route because the other woman that he does love, it's just, it's a complicated matter. And that's what it's all about. It's about the fact that life isn't simple. Yeah. Everybody's got stuff going on mm. and societal norms and pressures dictate how you present to the public, to how you present yourself behind the closed door. It's really interesting. Once you get over the fact it's the 1960s, because I have read reviews that have really annoyed me about it. Going, <laughs> oh, it's 1960s and blah, 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 blah. And it's just like, yeah, but I don't read Agatha Christie going, oh, it's the 1940s. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? No. Like, it, it's, it's of its time, yes. <laughs> no. Does the people moan when they read Sherlock Holmes and go, oh, it's a bit too... Uh, you it's know, it's 1890s. Yeah, yeah it's so 1890s. It's just, it just frustrates me. It's just like, yeah, and... It, it it highlights society at the time so well. Mm. Yeah. That's one of Sam's traits, isn't it? Focusing on, on character and making them believable. Yes. So you do care about them, even in a an adult book. And that is something Nick and Rose are going to talk about in our next clip. I know that he, he said in interviews he kind of grew out of, of science fiction. He, he kind of fell out of, of love with the genre in the 30s and, and 40s. His early career as a writer was very much in a community of science fiction writers and 
Uh, writing can be a lonely profession, and he, right from the start, was involved in this community. Some of them are quite big names, like Arthur Clarke, John Wyndham. You know, he he used mm-hmm. to meet with them every week in the pub, and they'd talk about. I yeah. don't know if they talked about science fiction. They probably had other things to talk about. Cricket. They probably cricket. talked about cricket. They might have talked about cricket. But over the years, he was still meeting them, but becoming less and less interested in science fiction. And I would think perhaps The Year of the Comet was his last pure science fiction novel. Then after that, The Death of Grass, which he wrote as John Christopher. It's a dystopian novel. It's not typical science fiction, I don't think. It's science fiction in the John Wyndham mould. So like, um, you know, The Midwich Cuckoos. It's the sort of genre which somebody uh, called cosy catastrophe, but cosy may suit John Wyndham, but it does not suit the death of grass. No, it's it's far from cosy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So there was there does seem to be. I mean, I don't know enough about science fiction, but there was that kind of science fiction that John Wyndham, I think, probably initiated, which is more about the people initiated um, in in the um, footsteps of H.G. Wells. Dad said in the context of John Wyndham, uh, this was somebody he very much liked as a person. You know, he he enjoyed his company. He 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 thought of him as a good person, and he he said, you know, in in comparison with John Wyndham novels, his have a kind of cruelty to them because he felt that he was writing more about man's savagery towards his fellow men, which was less of a topic for John Wyndham. And that was the difference between them. But he had great respect for John Wyndham. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Your dad grew up in this company, like you say, Alfred C. Clarke and John Wyndham. And, and and yet, you know, he seems to be largely forgotten beyond the tripods. So it, it's great that you're reintroducing his, his work to the public. I think The Death of Grass um, is still well known and perhaps some of his stuff is better known in the States because certainly mm. his young adult fiction or children's fiction, as we used to call it, yeah. that's where it was most successful. But yes, I mean, yes, you're right. It's Although I don't know, I mean, do, do people read Arthur C. Clarke nowadays? Perhaps they do. I, I think the film of 2001 yeah, of probably, probably yes. made him more, more noticeable. Yes, that's right. So it's a sort of more enduring thing because the Kubrick film... It just comes up in all the lists, doesn't it? Yeah, and then people think, oh, I'll go read the books. But he was more of a, he was like, um, Arthur Clarke was was a scientist, so he was mm. very much into the scientific side of things, perhaps more than the literary side of things. Yeah, he was more a hard sci-fi. Exactly, yes. Science fiction has always been how, say, this bit of technology will affect human relations or human behaviour. It's not about the future, so to speak. It's about the human condition which your dad was was writing about yeah that's what he was interested in yeah he was a great people watcher mm. which it, could be you know quite difficult if you were at times if you were being brought up by him did you ever notice he'd based characters on on any of the family members i think he was careful to try and conceal it uh, you know and i don't know that there'd be like what do you think, Nick? A character who is, oh, yeah, that's Rose, or oh, yeah, that's Nick. But I think you can see various things. You think, oh, I can see where he got that from. 
Where do you think he got Luke and the Prince of Waiting for him? Oh, I think that's, I think, and Luke as with Will, I think that is partly himself. Uh, because, uh, you know, he, he was quite an emotional man. And both with, with Luke and with Will in the, in the tripods, you, know, you get that sense of strong emotions close to the surface. Mm. That seems to be a thing that's familiar to a lot of young adult fiction as well, isn't it? Harry Potter's obviously the highest profile. Haven't actually ever read a Harry Potter. All right. Or seen the films. Well, there's a couple of books where Harry sort of feels alienated from his friends, becomes a bit arrogant, and he's created that wedge between them, a bit like Will does right. at the Chateau with, with Henry and Beanpole. Yes. Dad, I know he, he he never read the Harry Potter books, but he did admire J.K. Rowling for the way she basically got the film studios to do what she wanted. And mm. he seriously admired her capability on that. Because there's been that history of Hollywood butchering adaptations of books. Exactly. And that's why Terry that's Pratchett right. was holding his books close to his chest. Really? I didn't I didn't know that about him. But no, but J.K. Rowling, you know, didn't let that happen. And not having Americans playing any of the characters in the main Harry Potter films, which yeah. I think for a while they were talking about making tripods into films and they were, I heard stuff about it being set in America and you're like... Oh, oh hang on, that's right. Yeah, I mean, how can you do that? I mean, the White Mountains are so Europe. Rocky yeah, Mountains. Physically the Rocky Mountains, but all the cultural stuff, you know, like when they go to Paris and things. I mean, and not doing yeah. cultural in terms of mm. specific European cultures. I, I know your dad wasn't a fan of the, the Death of Grass adaptation and famously never saw the whole thing, did he? That's right. It came on TV probably 20, 30 years after it had been made. He's never mm. seen it. And he, and he sat down with his glass of scotch, which he would always drink of an evening. And by the first ad break, he'd had enough and he went to bed. <laughs> we know these things work in Hollywood, but you look at everyone jumping on the bandwagon after Harry Potter and going, what teenage young adult novel can we adapt now and make a success? ones like the Hunger Games and Maze Runner, um, Divergent and everything. Divergence. Yes. Yeah, that, that was it. And, and there's things like Empty World people have been interested in now and then. Mm. Although, um, the pandemic has really, to a certain extent, knocked that one on the head because people don't want to know at the moment, I think, about a, no. a, a world where that, uh, everybody dies. Um, there's a, a German TV series of The Guardians. Well, they made Empty World as well. So, yes, they did The Guardians and Empty World. And Deb was very um, impressed by the German adaptation of The Guardians. He felt that the Germans, being very thorough, which is perhaps a national characteristic, had gone to great mm. pains to try and recreate the detail. It, it sounds very different to uh, the approach of Richard Bates on the tripods. How did your dad feel about the tripod series? Did it help to sell the books because they were republished with BBC covers? I, I think he was always very pragmatic about that sort of thing. I remember he did go and visit um, when they were shooting on, on, on the set not that far from where he was living at the time. But yes, he would have seen it as, you know, it's a good opportunity for people to hear about the books. And, you know, OK, it's not um, how he would have ideally liked to have seen it adapted, but pragmatism wins a day. You Now and then you get somebody who says, oh, damn it, you know, they didn't make the third series of the tripods. If I see something like that, I will reply, well, you could always read the book. That, that's what I did. I wanted to know how it ended. Absolutely. Get the book. Yeah, I wanted to know how it started, so I got the prequel. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point as well.
Okay, so that was Nick and Rose talking about, as we just said, how Sam Yude's very much focused on the characters. You know, he'll be writing speculative fiction, he'll be writing sci-fi, but those tend to be just the triggers for the meat of the story for him, which is the characters. So now John is going to talk about the what you've read, The Death of Grass and the World in Winter. So the uh, the Death of Grass, for those familiar with the TV series Survivors, feels very much like Survivors. In fact, the novel of Survivors written by its creator Terry Nation, based on his first season, it's very grim. Things go downhill pretty quickly with society. So it starts with our main character in London. I think he's an architect. And because there is, <laughs> ironically, there's a virus affecting wheat that starts in China that is unstoppable and spreads across the globe. Again, it's like Survivors, but obviously 20 years or so early, because this was 1956. Yeah. And so you, you've got this man and his family, and he wants to go back to a valley in, in the north where he, he grew up. It's isolated, he thinks him and his brother's farm, they could live off there themselves and easily defend themselves because it's in a valley. And, and it is just this grim thing of, of what will people descend to. Obviously, there's anarchy and... And the cities become closed off and, and come under martial law, so they have to fight their way out past uh, British soldiers guarding the exits to London. And there are even things like the government in order to control populations so they don't run out of food. They talk about nuking places like Leeds or Manchester. It's all quite grim stuff and the things that people will have to do. Not quite descended savagery, but, you know, it's like killing people to feed their own family. But saying that, it was very enjoyable. We've seen online people talking a lot about this book fondly. Yeah, it's the one that I see a lot of people talking about other than the tripods. And and not just with Sile Press reprinting it, it's still in print in the US mm. where it is very popular. It's called uh, No Blade of Grass in America. But again, you care about the characters even though they have to go through this thing where they have to end mm. up becoming killers, effectively. And the, the other book that I read, The World in Winter... Uh, which was from 1962. The US title was... The Long Winter. So this is where, due to uh, solar radiation changes, the Northern Hemisphere has unusual winter storms to the point where people have to emigrate to the the equator. So the main character and his his friends move to Nigeria. And and because of the, the, the loss of the British government, the pound is worthless. And so you have these white people in Nigeria who, in a reverse of, of say, British colonialism, they are the waiters, the butlers, the doormen, you know, working for minimum wage, living in, in shanty towns and being patronised by the Nigerians. You know, even the well-meaning ones, you know, it, it's entirely as, as it was in, in reverse. And the novel culminates in our, our main character, who is uh, an Englishman, going back with an African expedition to try and set up a base or a port in England. And, and when they get there, obviously the winter's still there and London is controlled by various gangs. And again, it's a commentary on, on the uh, British colonialism of coming and trying to settle, being resisted by the natives. In fact, Sam's publisher was approached about translating the possessors into Afrikaan and he was fine with this, but he had one condition. He said, as long as you publish The World in Winter in Afrikaan as well, which was his anti-racism novel. Yeah. And the uh, Afrikaan publisher said no. Okay. So he said, right, no deal then. Mm. And this was quite a large publisher 
And out of all the other authors with this publisher, none of us had turned down an Afrikaan deal apart from Sam. I, I do want to read those two books, John. And then the Nick and Rose, they were talking with us uh, before the interview as well, and they were saying how people criticised Sam Yud's books, such as these, for saying, oh, it's unrealistic, civilization wouldn't descend into such savagery and behaviours if anything happens. Yet what has happened in the last two years with COVID, it's people were behaving like idiots with a panic buying. Punch-ups over toilet paper. Get, being aggressive and abusive to staff just for being asked to wear a, 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 mask. a mask. So... I think he was right. Yeah. But let's get back to our much more civilised conversation with Nick and Rose, where we discuss Sam Hude's early sci-fi stories. I noticed uh, your dad, in his early days, he wrote a lot of short stories, like for magazines. Have you got plans to publish any of them? That, that is a back burner project that we have. So every now and then, like if for whatever reason we read one of these stories, then, you know, we've, we've got a sort of file where we note, do we think we could use this if we did a collection? I think one of the problems with them is that they are science fiction stories and they are very much of their age. And of course, because technology is like, you know, a billion times further advanced than it was then, it can sometimes come over as, as a bit on the clunky side to somebody reading it fresh now. I think it'd be fascinating to read. Even stuff that's popular now can still have stuff that might come across as dating, like Stephen King's Running Man, where it's set in the future, but they're relying on cassette tapes and posting them in post boxes to log his adventure. Yes, I guess so, yeah. Yeah, so there could be a market for your dad's retro sci-fi. Yes, there's a very interesting website we were put onto by the guy who did a bibliography of Dad's writings several decades ago now, but he he alerted us to this. Um, it's loads of free ebooks, and some of them that we're particularly interested in the collections of writings by people like dad from that sort of early science mm. fiction era mm. so writings in terms of their stories there's collections of and also things they wrote about the whole science fiction movement i don't remember to to hand at the moment but dad was in the fanzine movement which was originally american yeah uh, but spread to britain in the early days of british sci-fi and he, he he actually was editing a fanzine magazine, I think, at the age of about 17. 17 he started, yes. Yeah, so yeah. that's when he first took off as a writer. Yes, well, well in the thick of fandom then, uh, at the height of, of the beginning, really. Yes, I'm, I'm looking at a, a, one of the e-books now, and it's called Home Front, Fandom in the UK, 1939 to 1945. And as I say, you can download, oh, it's TAF, taf.org.uk. Uh, which stands for Transatlantic Fan Fund. Um, And as I say, they've got, for somebody who is like a science fiction fandom nerd, they've got a whole range of of stuff on there. You know, people have have sort of put in an awful lot of work bringing these publications together and you can download them for free. You're interested in that sort of thing, which is great. Yeah. You both said you you worked in publishing. Did you ever have any literary aspirations yourself? Or was one author in the family enough? Uh, I've thought of every now and then I'll have a little go at writing something, but I I just don't think I've got it. You know, my skill is more in in turning other people's not very well written stuff, something that's intelligible. 
probably about 25 years ago when I, I hadn't totally banished the idea myself, though I'd never taken it seriously. I did this kind of thing that maybe other people do from time to time. I attended a creative writing evening class mm-hmm. and it became very clear to me that there were some people in the class who really were creative writers. They hadn't had anything published, but you could see that they had the kind of what it takes to be a writer. And I could tell, nobody said this to me, by the way, everyone was totally Mm. polite about my efforts, but I could tell for myself that it took a certain, I don't know what it is, gift perhaps, more than just gift, a drive and enthusiasm uh, an obsession and perhaps a combination of those. So, and I realised then, fortunately, 25 years ago, but, uh, so I haven't wasted any of my time ever since. <laughs> yeah, some writers do sort of treat it like office hours, don't they? They'll say, right, I'll write between nine and, and five or whatever. Which Dad definitely did. But I think he had to do that because he had a large family to support and he couldn't just wait for the creative spirit to, you know, waft him away. But yeah. he he also had, this is, this is something Nick isn't particularly, um, what's the word? Well, basically, I've got um, a personal interest in astrology. And, and, you, and you may think this is bonkers, but looking at dad's birth chart, you can see in there things that do smack of enormous creativity and imagination. On, on, the, on the working schedule thing, it's very hard to work out before he became a full-time writer how he was able to turn out three or four novels a year and still hold down a nine-to-five job. And I think he does mention somewhere that it was every evening and all weekends except for Thursday evening when he went down to the pub with his fellow writers. So even in those days, he had discipline, but must have been just ferocious enthusiasm and drive to be doing that at a time when he didn't know whether he would be able to become a full-time writer. Yeah. So we've spoken about the the different genres that he wrote in. Out of the, the books that you've published, what would you recommend, say, the top three novels for people who've only read the tripods for people to try <laughs> Nick, well i my top recommendation would be cloud on silver which is a very quirky novel about a quirky situation it's almost like it's one of these house parties which go wrong you know people are all locked together in a room and you know bad <laughs> things happen but the house party is actually a a voyage, you know, in a special yacht to the South Pacific, and they all end up on an island. And bad things happen. People don't behave. And there's a kind of waft of enigma hanging over the whole thing. I, It's one of my favourite of his books, and it's one of the ones which perhaps doesn't get that much attention. That's a funny quiz, because when I was looking on your website, that's the one that really stood out to me, and I ordered it. Yeah, really? Yeah. <laughs> it sounds Hope you like, enjoy yeah. it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading it. I think that's like one of our best covers as well, which of course has got nothing to do with the book, but a lot to do with the really talented guy who does the John Christopher covers. What would you recommend, Rose? Well, I would say I'd probably go more mainstream than Nick and say if they've not read The Death of Grass, then that would be, I'd say, um, 
an easy step from the tripods in the sense that it's a very tightly written narrative. There's no going into character studies or anything. It's just... Yeah, that could help maybe ease them gently into more literary kind of ways of well, it depends on people's taste, because, you know, I, I know myself, I, I enjoy reading literary things and the more kind of book. So there's a whole range out there for people to get interested in. Do you want to tell us the address of, of the Sile Press website? It's www.thesilepress.com. Yeah, so I definitely recommend a visit to Sailpress's website. Okay, so we're going to discuss now Cloud and Silver, which is a book from 1964. Its US title was Sweeney's Island, and I just want to say I really loved the book. I devoured it in two days. I couldn't put it down. But it's basically about this guy called Sweeney who, I guess he's like the creme de la creme in society. All the other characters are attending a party of his... They're all not very nice people, to be honest. They decide whether they want to be your friends based on whether you're going to be of use to them. And Sweeney invites them all on a cruise ship. He's like, oh, we're going to go around the Caribbean or wherever. Like, okay, cool. They end up visiting a remote island. They're like miles away from anywhere else, hundreds and hundreds of miles from anywhere. They go off the boat and moments later the boat is burnt. It's gone. (gasps) Oh! So they're all stuck on this island and they've got to survive and until someone can come and rescue them. They started off acting as the they're still on the cruise. So they kept looking to Sweeney as the leader and, and expecting the servants, the crew from the ship to do all the jobs for them, all the labour while they just lived it up. But things start getting worse and worse as time goes on. And it's basically Lord of the Flies, but with adults. I really like that because the thing about Lord of the Flies was it's, oh my God, how dare these children descend into such savagery? They should be ashamed of themselves. Yet in Cloud and Silver, Sam's basically saying adults are perfectly capable of descending into savagery as well. Yes, they are. Yeah, these are horrible (laughs) characters, not nice people. So you are going to get things like racism and other things, sexual assault and stuff like that because the rules go out the window and they do what they want. This does sound like Love Island. So I think Cloud and Silver, I just can't believe it's not been made into a TV drama. I could totally see it on ITV. The Sweeney character sounds like it could be Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos if it was set now. Possibly. That kind of person. Weirdly enough, Sweeney in my head was Orson Welles. He'd he'd been perfect for the role, but dude's gone now, so not going to work. Without giving spoilers, really, I, I presume the boat is deliberately sunk and there's some kind of social experiment going on here. Well, we don't know what Sweeney's motives are, oh. why he invited this particular group of people. Because there were lots of people at the party and he just picked about seven, right. eight people and said, oh, you lot stay behind for drinks. And then he's like, oh, I'm taking you on a cruise. Okay, uh-huh. weird. Each chapter is written from the perspective of a different character. Interesting. So you're getting into each character's heads at some point or other, except for Sweeney. Ah, uh, because it remains a mystery for mm. him. You, you're just wondering how much worse things can get in this book and it does keep building up and you're feeling this slow descent into madness for some characters or yeah. barbarism. So you'd recommend it then? Yeah, I really recommend it. Awesome. Yeah, so speaking of Cloud on Silver, they have like different characters' perspectives. I read The Possessors and it has the same kind of thing. You start off with a specific character and you kind of see their point of view, but as the chapters move on, you start seeing different characters' point of views. The Possessors is about, it's set in a, it's an English-run ski resort set in the Swiss Alps. The Alps again. The Alps is one of his favourite places. Definitely. 
I'm gonna. I don't feel like I'm giving it away because it's in the prologue. But Possessors is essentially an alien spore. They're dying out. They cast out so many spores into the universe. And it explains how different ones find different planets and they die for different reasons because it's wrong climate, it's barren, there's no this, there's no that, or this kills it, that kills it. And this one spore falls onto the Swiss Alps, gets snowed over. Yeah. It's fine in the snow, it's just protected. I think even by the end of chapter one, maybe beginning of chapter two, yeah. an avalanche happens at the ski resort and they're, they're cut off from the village, the close biter. And a character disappears and then you they reappear, but not themselves. Yeah. It had a very much like a lot of foreboding. It had a very much feel of, and it sounds daft, but it, it, even though it's classed as sci-fi, it's more horror-esque to me. Very similar to like when we read The Haunting of Hill House. You just had this eerie feeling throughout it. It's like a build-up that something's kind of brewing and it gets there. I feel like there's a bit where it drags a bit where you kind of get too much information between the characters because they're still kind of having their normal dramas on top of the fact that this alien spawn kind of thing has happened. And you're a bit like, okay, there's a bigger, bigger picture here. I don't give a shit about that at the minute. But generally speaking, it's a really good book and got that suspense. Possessors, that was published in 1964. Yeah. Uh, Same we- year as Planet Silver. Yeah. Uh, was it a John Christopher book? Yes, John Christopher. I think all these sci-fi... Oh, his later ones were John Christopher from about the 60s onwards. But then again, like I said, although The Possessors is classed as sci-fi, yes, it's got sci-fi tropes because it's an alien sport. Mm. It had the feeling of a horror more. Yeah, it sounds like classic B-movies. It had sci-fi elements, but I wouldn't have put that as its main genre. The X-Files did something close to The Possessors episode mm. Ice, which did have a little parasite creature buried in the Arctic ice, didn't it? And that was possessing people. I guess it's a trope, isn't it? To our eyes, now, mm. uh, the alien thing or ancient thing yeah. trapped in the ice. Oh, 100%. Yeah, because yeah, even Stephanie Mayer wrote The Host, and that was a very similar... Yeah, kind of thing. It's where humans would get bodies were getting taken over by an alien. Yeah, that was actually a really good book. Yeah, I've read a Twilight series. I'm not gonna lie, it was that was the right teenage years for that, and it was all right. But the host is a damn good book. I know this is not Sam Yude, but I'm just saying it's a good book. Go read it. <laughs> did they? Did they get round to making a film of the host? Yes, they did. Did they? Late two thousands. Yeah. But yes, there is film. And was there only the one book though? Only the one book, but it's a chunky book. Yeah. And it, it, it works well because it's like it was a full story. I think it's time for us to stop and listen to our last interview clip with Nick and Rose. So let's see what they're planning to mark one hundred years since Sam Yude's birth. So what are Sile Press's plans for your dad's centenary? We'll be bringing out one of his books, which is actually one of the longer books he ever wrote. What's the book called? Messages of Love. Uh-huh. And it's not just uh-huh. a love story. No, it's, it's, it's very far from being. Similarly to Palace of Strangers, it's a sort of well, family saga, I think, gives the wrong impression. But it's characters through the ages mm-hmm. starting in, when does it start next? Turn of the 20th century? Yeah, around then, I think. As, as in The Winter Swan, the First World War is a traumatic part of the narrative. Winter Swan sounds interesting as well, because it's like that, but going in reverse order. It's- That's right, nice. yes. Starting with her funeral main character and going right the way back to when she's a little girl. It's, it's quite a strange book because she's seeing things from the perspective of beyond the grave, if you like. 
it's not fleshed out in any kind of religious way or anything like that. It's just it's just like she's a disembodied voice looking back on her life, back and back and back and back. And you get a, a, a sort of deepening understanding throughout the book of her character and how she comes from having been this little girl to how she was when she dies. It is one of the other ones that stood out to me as one that has particular appeal. Yes, well, that's good to know. And, and you know, it, it is an unusual idea for, I mean, he would have been like when he wrote it, I think Nick said it was 46 to 47 he was writing it, so he would have been mid-20s, which is quite something to, again, talking about his sort of drive um, and creativeness to put yourself into the mind of an elderly upper middle class woman mm. your young man having just come out of the army is quite a leap it, it, as I say it's a strange book because of these little bits in between where she's sort of talking as if from beyond the grave I don't know that anybody's done that before well they probably have now but I don't mm. know the time from back to front it's like with the tripods we try to rack our brains of whether there was anything like that before the tripods and or whether your dad started it the post-invasion story because normally we see the alien invasion happening but in this case it's already happened yes i suppose um, hg wells i mean that is the evasion happening yes and, and and i think one of the main reasons he did that was because as i think you know he'd been asked by I think it was a publisher or an agent if he could produce something in for what was known as children's fiction then, and because he had by that time fallen out of love, in quotes, with science fiction, and he was much more interested in the past, that obviously was his solution to how he could have a go at what they suggested, but mm. keep his own enthusiasm for the idea. Of course, and the same thing with the printing, waiting and soul of the spirits. It's, That's right. It's written if it's in the past, but they know that they are in the future. It's interesting how he has these things, but they still feel like different stories. That's right, because they're two very different worlds, but built mm. on the same premise of it's the future, but it's regressed yeah. past mm. in terms of, of the way people live. I like that, and yeah. I've seen that idea appear in other sci-fis, but not fleshed out in the same way. Yes, yes, I think he did make that his own. I don't know mm. if he's done it in the same way since. Maybe he created his own genre. Yeah. <laughs> so he said he said to have created the the young adult dystopian genre. So, mm. And, and it wasn't wasn't sort of normal for in children's literature at the time to, you know, have places where everything had gone to rack and ruin and it was awful, you know. <laughs> we were still sort of just just about getting out of the Enid Blyton kind of period of children's literature. <laughs> Different kettle of fish indeed. You said your dad fell out of love with sci-fi and it seems like with the later books it was more using these concepts like climate change, earthquakes or the death of grass and alien invasion. They were just the triggers to get to the meat of what he wanted to write about. Which was about the people. I mean, there's there's yeah. a quote that, um, let me see if I can find it. Oh, yes, he, uh, this was a quote that he actually, I think he, he said it in the interview with Paul Brazier, who was the guy that Nick mentioned, who discovered who Stanley Winchester was. And it says, conversation turned to a recent spate of, no a spate of novels set on Mars and a possible setting for a John Christopher story, strand a group of people in a remote Martian enclave and see what happens. And the Mars aspect, I felt, was irrelevant he said, "What happens between the people? That's the thing I'm interested in." Mm -hmm. And I, th you know, I think the fact that he was so good at creating real-life characters 
because if you can't feel that the people you're reading about are real, then a novel just, for me, certainly doesn't work. Yes, I agree. And where some of the more scientifically, technologically science fiction written in those days, I don't know what it's like now, would have been the people are very much down the priority list compared with the technology. Well, it's been lovely uh, talking to you both. And thank you for taking the time to talk to us about your father's work. Well, thank you both so much. It's, it's been really great. So it was really great, Nick and Rose, giving up their time to speak to us. Definitely. And they've been really supportive throughout the making of this podcast. Thank you, guys. Both me and John have read a book called The Gull's Kiss. And that was published in 1962 under the name Peter Graff. Yeah, I was a bit confused about two A's, is it Graff or Graff? Graff, Graff. And originally it was going to be a Sam Ude novel, but no, the publishers wouldn't accept it. So he was shopping it around and eventually Ah. managed to get it under a pseudonym. So this was a period where Sam Ude resigned his job as editor in 1958. He was the editor of a technical journal and he travelled around Europe a bit, Geneva, southern France. But based on those experiences travelling in those places, he decided to write about... Geneva feels authentically... Real. It feels I mean, really I've never real. been there, but it feels no. like a real place. Yeah. Not overkill, but describing walking on streets, bridges and things like that. It's not spy thriller, but it's... No. The Gull's Kiss is about secrets and it's very... I'd say it's a very man's man world. Men drinking in cafes. Smoking. Being lavicious over waitresses. Oh, God. Oh, good uh, women. Go, go to strip club. Yes. Stealing wives. It's basically about a midlife crisis for this, this engineer who accidentally gets involved in some spy shenanigans. And it's not really a thriller. It's just mm. more about this guy's life. And I have to say... I. I struggled with this one. This is the book I struggled with the most out of all the ones I've read. Yeah, I just don't I like the main character, Charles Hibson. I don't find him likeable. He's womanising. He doesn't like his friends that much. And as you said, tries and steals no. one of their wives and he uses women, sleeps with them and then moves on. Yeah, it feels dated in that aspect of, yeah. of, of him not being ready to commit to marriage. I wouldn't say that's dated, though. No, just... just, (laughs) I I, I meant his attitude of... The attitude, yeah, because they're always looking at the women and looking at them as objects and describing that there's so much description of women's bodies, their boobs, their legs, their bums, their necks. There's so much detail in this book about women's bodies. It's ridiculous. But as you said, I mean, it's not even just what the book's about. What was it? He's an engineer. He's from England and he's been sent to Switzerland to... Sell a new machine. Yeah, sell new machinery at these factories. And there's secrets, because it turns out the guy had actually lived there as a child and there's an allusion to a secret and why his family had left. And to be honest, by the time you find out, I'm just like, I don't care anymore. (laughs) It's a very, like, of its time... Even the secret as well, which is why you don't care about it now. A bit. A bit, I guess, yeah. Because we don't want to spoil it, but me and John were discussing before and saying, I'm not really sure why his family had to leave because of the secret thing. There is one thing I like in it, and he suspects someone's spying on him. So mm. he sets a trap and he creates a false letter saying something like, Agent 18 is compromised, yeah. but Agent 17 has gone down to such and such a place. He just made a load of nonsense up and hid it in a drawer just to try and get caught. Okay, that's the highlight of the book. You don't need to read it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, from from what you've kind of said, it just sounds like it's just not one of Samuel's works that is timeless. You get some books that are timeless. doesn't matter when yeah. they were written. It just does not matter. That just sounds like it's a book of its time. There are books nowadays that I've read that I do not expect somebody to read in 20, 30, 40 years' time. And I think that maybe that was one of them that just was 
a, mm. of its time novel. I mean, because I've read James Bond, but I found the whole womanising thing, it just started grating on me because I guess, unlike Ian Fleming, I felt like there was no payoff to offset it. No, it, it was a, a low-key thriller. Mm, a very low-key lack of action and stuff to make you gripped. So what else have we read, Rebecca? Uh, you've read yes. The Sword of the Spirits trilogy. So these books were published in 1970, 1971 and 1972. So John, tell us about The Sword and Spirits trilogy. Okay, so the Sword and Spirits trilogy, or the Prince in Waiting trilogy, as it's also known. Ah. Sam preferred the Sword of the Spirits, but his publisher decided the Prince in Waiting, because it's three books. It's the Prince in Waiting, Beyond the Burning Lands, and the Sword of the Spirits. Again, another what we now call young adult trilogy. It's about a thirteen-year-old impetuous boy. I wonder where we've heard that before. Mm. Who is called Luke, and it's a post-apocalyptic England. So, apart from the surface similarities, they are very different books, but to me, I, I still recognise John Christopher's style in there. So, so this post-apocalyptic future, they know that they're in the future. They know about cars, computers and everything, because it's following a natural disaster that happened 100 or more years ago. And basically, the cities have become like medieval cities. They've got walls, they've got a prince in charge of each city, so there's no real king, there's no government. And basically, the survivors of the disaster turned against machinery because they blamed it all on man ruining the environment. Again, this is like the tripods. They went back to that kind of historical medieval kind of lifestyle, horses, farming, and also anybody with machines would be uh, arrested, killed, etc., etc., and also, people went back to some kind of spiritualism as a religion, so they have these halls where they hear the voices of the spirits and there's this priest class, they speak to the spirits and they pass on the messages to people, and, and so they're quite revered. But it's not much of a spoiler if I say that actually they are keepers of the knowledge of technology. Mm. And, and they have this plan to use Luke, the main character, to unify the cities and gradually bring back civilization. Weirdly, the first book is written in first person, and the second and third are in third person. And I think I'm, I think odd. I might have said that in the interview with Nick and Rose. Anyway, what, one interesting thing is uh, the burning lands in the second book are, are like this mountain hill range that that the ground is permanently ash, and so it's too dangerous to cross. And when when they do cross it, it's Wales, and um, Wales does have a king, and they're slightly more civilized. In fact, there's this bit where they watch... They've got a film projector and they watch a Tom and Jerry cartoon, a very scratchy, jerky Tom and Jerry, which they show to the English people. Another thing, it's got a classic fantasy setting as well because you've got men, you've got dwarves, and you've got these mutated people who are the servant class. And, and, and the dwarves, again, are, are mutants from the, the natural disaster that happened in the past. Ah. And so anyone who is a dwarf-like person says, right, you're now the dwarf race, and so dwarves breed with dwarves. And they do that dwarfing as well. They're, they're weaponsmiths, they're blacksmiths. That's their specialist Dwarves skill. are amazing. Sorry, I like dwarves. No, I'm just, I'm just laughing because I'm just thinking typical humanity. We just have to find a way to segregate people. And um, what we do. And anyone that's mutated or different, what we now say is somebody with a disability, they're the servant class and they are nobodies. It's an interesting, believable world with, with this class structure that feels medieval but is also... Modern because they know that technology existed and they've just rejected it. Yeah, it does sound interesting. Also, in 1970, he published The Guardians. Oh, uh, yeah, that's another one I've heard people talk about. Uh, another John Christopher. Again, young teenage boy <laughs> in, in, in the future, 
where there's this futuristic modern city where people live and are crowded together and they have sports that are a little bit gladiatorial to to let the pressure off kind of a bit like two lots of football team supporters watching these rocket cars racing and then on the other hand you've got the county which is the countryside which is separated by a fence Mm -hmm. and and some people flying by personal helicopter from the county to work in the cities another interesting thing about the guardians is there's this underlying thing of everyone in the country, they're living that gentrified lifestyle. So, so you've got the families, the big houses, the servant class, everyone's got their place, and fox hunting is quite noble and common, which I found a bit distasteful. Mm. There are also hints that there's a resistance movement within the urban and the countryside, and there's this class, the guardians, who control everything and know everything. Unfortunately, it feels like it could have been the start of another trilogy. I mean, it's open-ended, so you can imagine what will happen next, but... He never finished it. it. He never finished I don't know why, because obviously he wrote the next two books for the print-in-waiting. As we know, a German TV production was made. But it's not been translated, has it? No, there's no English dub or subversion available on VHS or (laughs) DVD. I've noticed some common themes coming up in his books, whatever pseudonym Samuel would use. So things like fox hunting comes up in at least three of these books. Horse riding, ships, boats, lots of detail about ships and boats and rigging and all that kind of stuff comes up a lot. Oh, cricket. They play cricket, cricket in it. So speaking of cricket, which of you guys read the cricket novels again? No one. What? Why would you read a cricket novel? No, 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 you two are reading the adult books. The adult oh, books. Oh, we just thought because you're reading everything, John, we thought you'd read the cricket <laughs> No, yeah. sorry. Just add um, it to your list, you know. You, you, you are the biggest reader out of all of us. We'll, we'll do that for the follow-up podcast. So no one's read any of the William Godfrey cricket no. novels? Uh, I'll go have a look on Amazon now. <laughs> <laughs> so we've only scratched the surface of Sam Yu's books because he has written so many. Not all of them are easily accessible in print but that is what sale press nick and rose are trying to do is bring ones that are out of print back into print hopefully we'll get to access more of his work yeah i think it's really nice that they're putting the effort in because otherwise his works would be lost yes and it is a shame in fact sam described himself as the forgotten chun's author and he really isn't that forgotten I've also been finding when doing research on Sam is there are websites which have archives and information on things like the fanzines he used to write in the 30s. So there's sites like taf.org, so that's T-A-F-F.org. There's the Speculative Fiction Database. And there's Rob Hansen's Fan Stuff, which is at F-I-A-W-O-L.org.uk. Looking at these, there are various PDFs and scans of, you know, his old fanzines, but there's also PDFs of books people have written about the history of fanzines and such. And, mm. you know, Sam Yud comes up quite a bit in these different sources. So you could spend hours doing research on these sites, finding out way more stuff. Yeah. I think it'd be great if they do eventually get around to putting Sam Yud's earlier sci-fi works together in a collection. That'd be cool to read. There is a niche for that. There are people who are into these old sci-fis like Philip K. Dick and people who are into things like retrofuturism. And, you know, I follow tweets which repost old sci-fi art. Wow. Oh, yes. Uh, Like Port Librarian and and Noir and Mm. and things like that. Yeah, Yeah. really old stuff from like the 50s, 60s, 70s. And it's just really cool. And I'm always retweeting it. Yeah. And as I said earlier, those two stories I read, Blemish and The New Wine, were were very good. The New Wine especially isn't that, that dated at all. And then you've got this genre called atom punk, which is, if you're not sure what it is, just 
think of the Jetsons and that's kind of it in a nutshell. It's that kind of sci-fi aesthetic, very 60s vision of sci-fi, and that's popular now. It's Plus, not... you can admire the writing. Exactly, yeah. Especially as, for Sam, it was always about the characters. That's it, and the characters are realistic, and you always read it and go, I know somebody who could be that person. He writes characters well, and I think it doesn't matter when it is set, you can read it and still appreciate the work. So to sum up, we all went away and read different aspects of Sam's work. Very different genres. Different eras they were written in and, yeah. you know, we found them enjoyable to a greater or less extent. I mean, I guess Gold's Kiss was the least popular. Still worth reading. Also, when you find out what the title means, it's a bit stomach churning. Yeah, I was slightly disappointed that the main character was not a seagull. That is such a bad joke. Yeah, that's just stupid. <laughs> but the point is, it's accessible. The quick it's, read. It's, it's good reading, you know what I mean? It's not a chore or a slog. No. A common description I've seen people say of Sam Eude's writing is it's clean and efficient, and I, I would agree, you get through it. You know, there can be real page turners, a lot of these books. And it doesn't feel underwritten either. No, it doesn't. Some of the things are a bit cliché. Fair enough, but I think he was the first one to write in these well, genres. that's what we're finding. He's and invented that's it. genres. So can you say it's cliche when he's the one who invented it, when everybody else has taken his tropes and stolen them? You can find out more about Sam Ude's work at Sile Press. So they have a website. They also have a Twitter account. And you can get e-books of these books. So I've bought them all as e-books through Sile Press. Yeah, I, I bought The Possessors was an e-book. The practice wasn't the practice. No. I went, the practice I did get on on, e, on eBay. No, they say that's right at the back of the list for <laughs> converting to re-release. I like it. I don't. Yeah, you I don't think. It, you I made don't, it sound good. Yeah, I don't think it's as sordid as for today. We're in twenty twenty two. Yeah, I don't think it's quite in the same vein as it was in the sixties. We've come a long way in sixty years. Yeah, and well, look how popular Mainstream Fifty Shades of Grey is. It's not quite uh, as... Which, is, so badly which is supposed to be bad, but oh, my, point is, uh, uh, my point is, it's not like it's as embarrassing or shameful for someone to write this kind of stuff now as it might have been seen 30, true. 40, 50 years ago. Very true. It's so mainstream now and accepted. It's not seen as sordid and seedy and shameful almost for a writer to do erotica. I mean, other mainstream writers such as Anne Rice have even dabbled in erotica. She used to write right. erotica under the name A.N. Rockalow. And now they're published under her actual name, Anne Rice. Ah. You know, you, I've seen them in Waterstones. I mean, I don't know what they're like, but I've seen them. <laughs> but, you know, in what stuff they do have an erotica section and it's just there on the ground floor at the bottom of the staircase. I mean, anyone could right, see it. Right, wasn't next, I, right not... next to the children's section, was it? It was actually kind of close to the children's section, to be honest. Because that's always downstairs in Waterstones. But uh, I would say it's very much like just Mills and Boons, isn't it? Let's be honest. They're all the raunchy, you know. I've yeah. never read any of those. Like, I've, I've never, I've I've never read any, but... That's what they're known for. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. It's but I think, yeah, popular people... genre. But the thing is, mm. this is it. Sam Yud was like a chameleon. He could turn his hand to anything, to all kinds of genres. And yeah. You will find a book you resonate with. There will be a specific one, and you'll go, this is fantastic. Just read things that you wouldn't normally read. That's how this podcast started. I would not <laughs> yeah. normally read sci fi. That was not my go to. But that's what was given to me in book club. And look what happened. So I'm a big advocate for stepping out of your comfort zone and trying something new. Yeah, I agree. 
Because the Hilary Ford books, as I said before, if I saw those covers, I'd, I'd walk past them in the shop. But I'm glad I read them. They were really good. Yeah, I, I want to read those now, Rebecca. Yeah, I, re- I do recommend them. They're, very, they're both really good. Because he's an author I trust, so mm. I'd, I'd be happy reading them. If you're really into historical period drama, mm. you're going to get that feel from them. You're going to enjoy them. And as I said before, Clown Silver, it should be an ITV or a BBC <laughs> drama. It's totally a television drama. I hope you've enjoyed this journey into the worlds of Sam Yude as much as we have. Sadly, this brings us to the end, not only of this episode, but also the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening about the Tripod's books, the TV show, merchandise, video game, comics, Viewmaster reels. And the beach towel. Can't forget the beach towel. So it may be the end of Tripod's cast, but not the end of podcasting for me, Dan and John. We're going to have a break. Stay tuned to our social media. Yeah, stay tuned to our social media. We'll be promoting our next podcast via the Track Podcast handle before moving to a new handle. Who knows what it could be? We've enjoyed working on this podcast. Thank you for sticking with us this long. (laughs) Hope you've enjoyed it. So that's me, Rebecca Ray, Danny Ray, John Isles saying goodbye. 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 Bye. Thank you for listening to Tripodscast. If you'd like to contact or comment on the show, email us at tripodscast at gmail.com, Twitter at Tripodscast, Facebook Tripodscast, Instagram Tripodscast, and Reddit r slash Tripodscast. Special thanks go to Nick and Rose Ude at the Sile Press. Post-production by Kevin Hiley. So that was an interesting clip with Nick and Rose. That's interesting. Mm. That's very interesting. So interesting. Oh, oh, we're going to get spanked now. How is it, Kevin? We've had nine episodes of Rebecca as soon as we've had an interview. That was interesting! I don't know what else to fucking say. We go, 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 we